Even though you've told me, do not allude to prior podcasts, you've been dying to ask me this one question for like five podcasts in a row. So I'm breaking the rules. No tangents here. What is the goddamn question already? Do you promise no tangents? I promise. I swear. Name some people, James, that you think have significantly, quote, saved or really improved the world. Nobody. Like, uh... We we know like I, the world is terrible and it's gotten worse and worse over time. That's your view. Well, we know that life is not really such a pleasant thing. What do you in mean? General. We know that life is not. <laughs> right, we don't know that. that. I'm sorry. I I really apologize. I'm sorry about that. Right. In general, life's pretty difficult. People have their ups and downs. I, I think that's a big judgment. Uh, in right, general, right. life is pretty difficult. I think a lot of people would agree with that, but I think a lot of people would disagree. Okay, okay. Sorry, I don't mean to beat you up. I, no, I, I don't. I think it's hard to define save the world. Like, okay. We, okay, here's one thing we do know. Steven Pinker wrote that great book. I forget what the name of it is. You probably remember where he showed that every century, the percentage of violent right, deaths better, in that century are better, better, better angels or something. Yeah, so we wrote about that in Freakonomics, by the way. Do you not remember that? Yeah, I do remember. That's why I'm, I'm quoting you, actually. Yeah. So century over century, violence has gone down as a percentage of violent deaths of the overall population. Right. So I don't know, was there somebody in the 20th century that was better than the, someone in the 19th century that made violent deaths fewer? And how would you define saving the world? Is it Are we more literate? All right, I'll tell you how I define So if I were going to answer this question, one person that comes to mind is, let's say, Norman Borlaug. Do you know Norman Borlaug? No. Okay, here's... He the, saved the world. The Norman fact- Borlaug saved the world is what you're telling me. Did he save the world? Would the world no longer exist without him? Probably not. But is he responsible for the lives of probably one or two billion people? I think the answer is him and others around him directly and indirectly, yes. So the fact that you, who knows so much stuff, you know more stuff than just about anybody I know. The fact that you don't know him is remarkable. And you've forgotten a lot of stuff. So Norman Borlaug was a plant chemist. He was a scientist who worked originally for DuPont, and he helped create, basically, now we would call them GMOs, and they would be um, much, much, much derided, and they were somewhat derided at the time. But basically, he went to poor parts of the world. He was in Mexico. He was in Asia. He was in a number of places. And he said, look, the problem here isn't that they don't have land. The problem here isn't that they don't work hard. The problem here isn't that they don't have the resources and the know-how and the desire to grow food. It's that the food that they're growing just isn't really very good yet, and it can be better. So he basically engineered a way for wheat to produce a whole, whole, whole lot more by basically, if I, under, if I remember and understand it correctly, making the stalk a lot firmer. And once you engineer the stalk to be firmer, the stalk can hold more of the fruit or the, the actual wheat. And by doing so, Norman Borlaug and other people around him, but he won the Nobel Prize for it eventually, gave rise to what we called the Green Revolution. And we look at the world now. If you go back and you read all the history, you go back 50, 80, 100, 200 years ago when the world population was getting close to a billion, and all the smart money said, there's no way we can support and feed 2 billion. No way. And there's no way we can do 5. We're now at 7 billion. And while it's true that there is still famine in the world, 
I would argue that almost all the famine, if not all of it, is not the result of our inability to grow right. food. It's it's usually corruption, exactly, or, political and and, and other failures. Okay, so that's a very interesting thing. So let's let's define it as not necessarily save the world, but solve a billion person problem or potentially a billion person. Or problem. you could say save the world if you're one of the billion people who wouldn't have existed. If so, you want to look at it that way. So here's another one. Who's what? What's the name of the guy? And maybe you even mentioned this in free economics also. But what's the name of the guy? It's a hard-sounding name who discovered that washing hands. Oh, Ignaz in, Semmelweis. Yeah, absolutely. And they, they, they were. Other doctors were so upset at him. I think he was even thrown in a mental institution. He was and died trying to escape. Yeah, yeah. It was so, a brutally tragic story. Even though he was correct, that so, so, so the story is he saw that people were going straight from the morgue where they were treating people who were dying to then delivering babies, but they weren't washing their hands. Uh, in between, and just simply the and so infant mortality was like at forty percent, and just washing hands made it down to two percent. Right, and we should say this was pre germ theory. This was pre us knowing as humans that there were these microbes that actually caused uh, disease. And so doctors actually hated him for it for some unknown reason. Maybe he didn't have a good ability to communicate. I don't know what it his was. Interesting. Is. A lot of a lot of the disdain was because. A doctor at the time was uh, the type of professional class that was considered, I don't want to say godlike, but close to godlike. And you were considered to be the ultimate authority on everything. And what was fascinating about how Semmelweis figured it out is he worked in a hospital where there were two wings. And it was a great case of natural randomization because one wing, the doctors, and it was attached to a teaching hospital. This was in Vienna. It was all doctors and their male interns who delivered babies. And the other wing was midwives, so all women delivering. And the rate of maternal death in the midwives ward was way lower. So you're thinking, like, how can the midwives possibly be better than the doctors? And the doctors had such huge, huge pride and arrogance and ego that they couldn't accept, A, that they were worse. So they didn't even want to get the data in the first place to compare the two wards. But secondly, when Semmelweis argued, as it turns out correctly— that the the death was being caused by the doctors coming straight from performing autopsies in the teaching part of the hospital to delivering babies. They still, you were right, they didn't accept it. They totally ostracized him. And the biggest reason for them not believing it seemed to be that they just couldn't believe that a doctor in that position could actually do anything harmful, that they were so hardworking, brilliant, and powerful. And that, to me, is one of the greatest examples in history of, like, where your own arrogant bias prevents you from seeing what's, to someone else, an obvious truth. So what's another example? So here's an answer on core. Edward Jenner, pioneer of the smallpox vaccine, which I think is a pretty good argument for someone who saved, if not the world, than a whole lot of lives. But here's... So, 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 like, you could throw him in the category with Jonas Salk with polio... Yeah, except Jenner was way earlier, and Jenner, if I recall correctly, kind of figured out the vaccine theory in general, which is that you take the thing, you take a version of the thing that is bad for you and turn it into a version that's good for you, right? Here's one I love. This is an answer from a fellow Encore named John Lively, and uh, he writes, this man, Stanislav Petrov, literally saved the world. So check out this story, James. He, Petrov, was in command of a Soviet missile silo in 1983. His job was to watch for a potential nuclear attack from the U.S. and, if necessary, to retaliate. 
That's a pretty that's a pretty tough job. Okay, right, right. On September 26, he received a missile warning alerting him that a potential nuclear ICBM, inter- intercontinental ballistic missile strike, had been launched against his country. Now, as a good Soviet officer, when this alarm was raised, it was Petrov's job to relay this to his high command immediately, which would most likely result in a full-scale counterstrike on the part of the Soviets. The obvious result of which would have been big and bad, right? Okay. And and it would have been believable at that time, too. Totally. Like Reagan, 1983. Luckily for us, Mr. Petrov decided that it was more likely that his new warning system was faulty rather than the U.S. launching a preemptive nuclear strike. In addition, the fact that his warning indicated five missiles in the air seemed strange because all intelligence suggested any U.S. strike would be all out, that is, raining nukes. So only five seemed strange. It turns out that our friend's intuition was right, the malfunction that had nearly caused World War III and the death of countless millions was actually caused by the warning system detecting. Can you guess what it was seeing instead of nuclear missiles? Uh, UFOs? <laughs> Clouds. It was subsequently determined that the false alarms were caused by a rare alignment of sunlight on high-altitude clouds and the satellite's Molniya orbits, an error later corrected by cross-referencing a geostationary satellite. That's about as close to saving the world as one man is ever likely to get in my book. So that's pretty good, and I didn't know that one either. That's three names that are, are you could pull out of a hat at a cocktail party. Stand by for the answer to today's question, Maybe, right after this short break. Today's show is sponsored by Howl.fm, which you know by now is an awesome comedy network likened to being the Netflix for podcasts, brought to you by the same people that bring you all your favorite Earwolf shows, including this one, Question of the Day. With Howl Premium, you get exclusive access to a brand new Howl original comedy series, The Mysterious Secrets of Uncle Birdie's Botanarium, starring Jemaine Clement from Flight of the Concords. You can follow the journeys of a famous ship known as the Jewel of the Gravy Isles on its mission to find the source of all pleasure in the world, Heaven's Clover. Sounds like no other podcast you have ever heard with a rich, detailed sound design and original music produced by an outstanding creative team from, where else, New Zealand. If you love absurd series like A Series of Unfortunate Events or Dr. Horrible's Sing-Along Blog, And if you love absurd comedy from New Zealand, you won't want to miss this series. With Howl Premium, you'll also get exclusive access to more than 120 hours of new Howl original miniseries and audio documentaries like The Complete Woman, Finding the Funny with the Sklar Brothers, and Fruit. You'll also gain access to more than 80 comedy albums, all the archives from WTF with Mark Maron, and every episode of every Earwolf show, such as Comedy Bang Bang and How Did This Get Made. Get access to all this exclusive content on your iPhone, your Android phone, and on the web for only $4.99 a month. And with the promo code QOD, as in question of the day, you can get a full month of free trial. To redeem your promo code, make sure you create your account on the web at howl.fm and enter code QOD at checkout. Remember, to hear the mysterious secrets of Uncle Birdie's botanarium, along with dozens of original audio miniseries, go to howl.fm. That's howl, H-O-W-L dot F-M. Use the promo code QOD for a one-month free trial of Howl Premium. Who's done the worst? For destroying the world. Well, besides uh, James Altucher, I'm going to say the most for destroying the world. From podcasting too much. 
I mean, Hitler and Stalin are pretty pole pot. You know, they're Mao. You know, they're pretty. There are a lot of good, easy uh, villain answers. Let me think uh, if I can go beyond that. What What about like? Uh, would you ever? Is it too much of a stretch? To say Einstein, just because his formulas then led to the development of the atomic bomb? Hmm. Uh, I would say no, because on balance, the atomic bomb didn't um, wreak any. I mean, it's a different kind of different category of destruction than the other bad dudes we just named. But but not just the destruction, but also the whole Cold War was under the theory of mutual assured destruction. So it basically kept the entire world in fear for it's true but, five ga- decades. but game theory fortunately got us out of the cold war if you read the yes. game theorists so um you know I, I, I would if i were to like so I, I have no idea how to answer your question which i love i love very much but i would say that the person or people or institution or nation whatever who's been most responsible for pitting people against one another generally, would be most responsible. Now, you might argue there is no such person, institution, whatever, that's human nature. But, I mean, if you think about the difference between living in a generally adversarial world versus a generally collaborative or cooperative world, like, you know, you and I, we like to collaborate and cooperate and try to be nice to people, and most people that we know do the same. But the construct of competition and adversarial battles is really a prominent construct in the 21st and 20th and 19th century. And so I could imagine that things might have gone in a different direction. I could imagine that 800 or 1200 or 1900 or 4400 years ago that we might have gotten on a path more toward cooperative collegial societies rather than adversarial ones. So I would say that whoever contributed to that, if not all of us, because it maybe it is just human nature, that's who I would say. For the worst? Yeah, yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw one out there, which is sort of a little bit cliche-ish, but I'm going to say Abraham was the worst guy ever. Mm. So Abraham, Why? the Be- father of the Jews. Because first he off, got rid of Ishmael? No, first off, he had to cut off part of his dick. Right. <laughs> so God comes down and says, cut off part of your dick, and he just does it. And that's how I think he— that started a bad trend. Well, that's sort of the trend where he had kids. Like that was the deal he made in order to have kids. Then he had Ishmael, and of course he sent Ishmael and his, and Ishmael's mom out into the right. woods. Then he had Isaac, and then he has to say to his wife, um, "We got to go out early <laughs> one day. He's going to sacrifice. He's all ready to sacrifice his son." Right. Then later on, of course, we have all these religions that started the children's crusades, all the wars in the Middle East, like everything. So it just it all comes from like. So Abraham. if it's all coming from Abraham, why not blame God then? Well, if, God's if, not a person. Well, do you think Abraham's a person? First of all, A, do you think Abraham's a person? But it, it, if you do think Abraham's a person, then almost surely you have to think that Abraham was following orders from something like God. I think Abraham— The very reasons that you gave for hating Abraham are because he carried out the orders of this— All right, but I'm going to say Abraham was an abstraction of some landowner— you know, who was trying to keep his brood, you know, intact so that they would protect his children and his grandchildren and their cousins. And and then so he so he created a vision, a story around it, so he could just keep control over everybody. And that sort of spread right. uh, due to the spread. So if you and, were Abraham and you'd gotten to that point and you've got Isaac and God says, go up on Mount Horeb and you're going to sacrifice your son, right? right? Which, by the way, is totally illogical because oh. God has already told Abraham that he's going to make him a father to the nations, and now his only heir he's going to kill. 
But let's say you're Abraham there. And let's say you've gone with the program so far. You've done the circumcision. What do you do with the Isaac on the mountain and the sacrifice? Is that the point at which you, James Altucher, as Abraham, say, enough, God. I've done everything you've asked. This is just nuts. And any God that would have me do that is not a God I want to hang out with. Well, unless I was insane or schizophrenic. So he was probably insane or, or schizophrenic at that point. Then anybody would say, oh yeah, I'm going to kill my kid. Mm-hmm. So Now, you know, so you're giving Abraham qua God as an example of the worst person, right? As a person who's done least to save the world. But right. you could, you probably could easily, just as easily make the argument that God qua Abraham or Abraham qua God is probably What does done, qua mean? You know, Latin <laughs> for like one to one. Okay. Right? That has done the most to save the world, right? Couldn't you just as easily make the Why? argument? Oh, I don't know. Because it seems like every war has been on the, like, think of the children's crusades. Think of all the crusades. Think of all yeah, the Middle Eastern wars. So what's the counterfactual, though? The counterfactual is if people for thousands of years didn't think that there was some supreme deity that was kind of sometimes protecting them and somehow waiting to punish them if they did something bad, right? So you could argue that the idea of religion uh, especially many, many years ago, was the first law and order and did a really, really good job. Although, you know, there was a code of Hammurabi. That That's true. 1776 BC. Uh, which, Is that true? Yeah. That, yeah. Which uh, wasn't re- related to any religion you're, as you're far abso- as we know. You're absolutely right. As far as we know. But in terms of saving the world, so Norman Borlaug is kind of a minor candidate, Ignaz Semmelweis is kind of a minor candidate, and this Russian military fellow is kind of a minor candidate. But who, in your Uh, estimation... uh, Gutenberg inventing the printing press, because really all of these ideas were able to spread quickly throughout. Any good idea was able to spread quickly throughout the world because it was written down and then passed around and copied and passed around. So you have to throw Gutenberg in there. You don't have to, but I think that's certainly been a positive influence on the world. It's interesting because when ideas can't spread or mate, it's remarkable. Like now, it's hard to imagine a worthwhile idea not getting an audience in the modern world, right? Whereas like if you go back, like Semmelweis, that was one example, right? For like 30 or 40 years after he discovered what was essentially germ theory, it was not acted upon. But if you go back remaining in the realm of childbirth and maternal medical care, there was a doctor, it was a father and then a son, who invented the forceps, but they worked for a royal family, and they were not allowed or did not want to, for whatever reason, spread the word. And so the forceps was invented, but then for many years, I don't remember how many, was not disseminated. Okay, well then let me ask you a question, because this is very related. If Adam Smith's invisible hand of capitalism was around, perhaps it would have been disseminated. So is Adam Smith in the category oh, of someone who, because then, like there would be going. A, then there would be an incentive for the king to say, okay, let's charge $5 for this and <laughs> sell it to every other kingdom out there. Yeah, but if you're a king, especially then, you, you don't need your $5 royalty per forceps. I don't know. You always wanted more riches. That's why they went to war. So Adam Smith's invisible hand did a lot to say, hey, let's start making pharmaceutical are you drugs. Nominating, that we are you sell. nominating Adam Smith? I think I'm going to nominate. Well, well, Adam Smith was just an, a translator. The invisible hand was happening anyway. The invisible hand of capitalism was happening anyway. So here's why I'll cast at least a half a vote for Adam Smith. And this is what I think is forgotten about Smith, is Smith you know, gets talked about as the founder, the godfather, whatever, of classical economics. 
But let's remember that Smith was a moral philosopher. That was his thing. He wasn't really, like, he got interested in describing how economics worked only insofar as it described how people were living their lives and how they wanted to live better lives and how their lives were going to be, were being really disrupted by the Industrial Revolutions. And that's what I find most appealing about him is he wasn't, it wasn't about profit maximizing. It wasn't about, you know, it was really about... um, That's why he was almost a translator that, look, here's a positive way we can look at this situation that is happening. There's this invisible hand that ultimately is ethical and moral and separating out capitalism from the industrial revolution and from corporatism and all this other stuff. Sounds a lot like religion when you describe it that way. Well, I think he viewed it that way. See, if you thought of God or Abraham as a little bit more Adam Smith, I don't think they'd make your list of uh, the world's worst villains. But but capitalism (laughs) won't tell me to kill my kid or cut off part of my penis. We received word there are still questions at large in the universe. Find out which one we're taking down next time, right after this. Hi, guys. Danielle Schneider here. Eileen! done it again. <laughs> As you know, Casey Wilson and I are obsessed with all the Real Housewives. Eileen would be the cheapest, best date <laughs> because you could give her Claire's and she would think it's Cartier. <laughs> so that's why we started Bitch Sesh, a Real Housewives breakdown show. And we've got some really exciting news. Starting this week, we're going to cover the brand new season of... Real Housewives of New York City. Yes! Is Erica here tonight? Maybe she is, bitches. (laughs) So look for new episodes every Thursday morning. Bitch Sesh is coming to the Big Apple. Only on Earwolf. On this podcast, I'll admit you come off like a little nasty. (laughs) Thanks for listening. We hope you'll be back next time when our conversation will go something like this. So the question is, how do you become an interesting person? Someone asked this question on Quora. I like that question. There was a wide range of answers, but I'm just curious about what you're at. You've clearly had an interesting life. You've done lots of different things. Uh, How do you become an interesting person? Well, I would say the first step toward becoming an interesting person is to be the kind of person who asks a question about how do you become interesting. Question of the Day is produced and mixed by Nathan Rossborough with Allison Hockenberry. 